If you will take your Bibles, please, and open to 2 Samuel chapter 4. As we continue our series in the life of David after God's own heart, this week we'll be looking at power and politics part 2. As in this section of 2 Samuel, what we're learning is how David actually becomes king. And it is through, um, it is according to God's promise, but it also includes some very difficult and some very, um, some things that involve a lot of scheming and manipulation. And so the writer of Samuel is trying to emphasize to us that as David comes to power, all of these things are not, all of these things aren't placed at the fault of David. David is righteous through these things that are happening. So we've been tracking um, the, the, the last couple of weeks the growing mustard seed kingdom of David. Now again, David's kingdom at this time represents the first time in all of history where David, where God's chosen king is actually ruling over his people on earth, though it isn't just the small part of Judah um, in Israel. David's king kingdom is small, but this small kingdom is pointing us towards the future kingdom that David's heir, Jesus the Christ, will one day bring to fruition. Now, we are still looking forward to that day when Jesus comes and makes every wrong right. Now, David's kingdom is also starkly different from the kingdom that was taken away from Saul. If you remember, Saul, through his disobedience and his failure to heed God's word, God stripped the kingdom from Saul and said, I'm going to give it to a man after my own heart, David. And here's what we've learned so far the last few weeks about David's view of his kingdom. So, I think I have four quick things. Number one, first we've learned that David's kingdom isn't going to function by the means of manipulation or grudge-bearing or revenge or murder or unrighteousness. So the, the ends, the quote-unquote ends justify the means will not be the way that David's kingdom operates. Second, we've learned that Abner, we've learned through Abner in his story that we looked at last week, that no one can resist or overcome this kingdom that has been promised to David. Though Abner rebelliously anointed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as king over Israel in direct opposition to God's promise to David, which we also learned last week what that he knew all along. Ishbosheth knew all along that God had promised David the kingdom. And third, we've learned through Joab and Abishai. That revenge will not stop or sidetrack or subvert God's kingdom. David's word as king is to be obeyed. Though Abner killed Asahel in battle, Joab and Abishai, that's, that's Asahel's brother, when the time came, David gave Abner the olive branch and said, I give you security and peace. David did not desire more bloodshed from Joab. And after, after Joab and Abishai killed Abner, David wept. He, he wept over the unrighteous killing of Abner, though Abner had made decisions that ultimately led to that very same confrontation. That's a long story, right? I'm just trying to catch you up. And then lastly, and this is most importantly, lastly we've learned something about David. David knows that his kingdom belongs to God. That is the most important thing in all of this. David is accountable to God, responsible before God, to do what God has commanded. 
David knows that God is really king over his people. David isn't David is an earthly king, but God is really king over his people. David is simply a representative, a steward, and an ambassador. And by the way, if we are all wise, we will recognize this is our place too. No matter what station we hold in life or what position we may have, we are all stewards, ambassadors, and we will ultimately give an account before God. So, David... This is the real issue and what makes David a man after God's own heart. He seeks to live and act and rule according to God's word. Now today, as we look at 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 12, you can give a sigh of relief. I'm not going to give you three more chapters today. Amen. That was a good softball. Amen. We have 12 verses. I'll try to go through quickly. But here it is in a nutshell today. Today we're going to learn that God doesn't need the help of injustice to bring his kingdom about. God himself has promised that David will rule over all of Israel as his king, and so David doesn't need anyone's help besides God. So, I'm going to break this into four sections, and we'll read the text as we go through it. So here is the first thing we're going to see to this morning. First thing we're going to see is the disintegration of Ishbosheth's kingdom, the crumbling, the falling apart of Ishbosheth's kingdom. Look at verses 1 through 4. In Second uh, Samuel four, it says, "When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. So they're brothers." For Beeroth is also counted as part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gidaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, what's happening here in these verses is we're continuing the theme from chapter 3, verse 1, where David's kingdom has been shown as becoming stronger and stronger, and Saul's kingdom is becoming weaker and weaker. Now, much has happened uh, since, much has happened in chapter 3, right? We're told here in verse 1 that news spread quickly from Hebron to Ishbosheth back in Mahanaim, his capital, that Abner has been killed. The writer says succinctly that when Ishbosheth heard the news, verse 1, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now, let's all at this moment put ourselves into this narrative. Let's imagine ourselves there. Abner was the general of Israel's armor, arm, um, army. It was Abner who had, according to uh, first, uh, 2 Samuel 2 8, it was Abner that made Ishbosheth king over Israel. So Abner, the kingmaker of Israel, is dead. He was the general. And more than that, he was the mediator who, was, who had just been going, who had just went between the elders of Israel and David to negotiate a treaty of reunification under David's rule. And now that Abner is dead, Ishbosheth has no one protecting him. There is no one putting up any more resistance to David's forces. Remember, there's been a long war between David and Ishbosheth. 
So there's no one else leading the resistance. This is why his courage failed. He knows his days are numbered. And if I was a betting man, I would bet that he's probably not aware of the negotiations that just took place between Abner and David. Israel is dismayed because their hopes of reunification seem to be dashed to pieces now that Abner has been killed. They don't know, they don't know that it wasn't David's will and how David mourned the killing of Abner. So Israel is thinking that if David will treat Abner this way, who's supposed to be reuniting our people, and the army is dispersed and defeated, what will David do to all of us since we rejected him as king and we chose to follow Ishbosheth? It's a logical question. Ishbosheth and Israel are dismayed, they're disheartened, they're discouraged. And things are disintegrating and falling apart around them. And this brings us to the question. Where, is Ish, where will Ishbosheth's and Israel's hope lie? Who is going to be their savior? How, how is this going to turn out? Who is going to guard the king and take Abner's place? What if something terrible happens to Ishbosheth? Who is going to lead the army and protect the king? These are questions that people ask when civilization is falling apart around them. Now, to answer those questions, the writer, the, the writer here in Samuel, he introduces us to several possibilities that might allow Ishbosheth to stabilize his kingdom. The first possibility lies with two captains named Bana and Rechab, who we're told are Benjamites like Saul and like Ishbosheth. They've been leading raiding bands for the king against the Philistines. Now, in this sense, they're much like Joab, who were told earlier that Joab led raiding bands for David. Now, they wouldn't be captains if they were ineffective leading soldiers and successfully carrying out their missions. We're also told that they're from Beeroth, which is part of Benjamin, though they had fled to Gidaim. Now, that's important. This connects their story back to the death of Saul on Mount Gilboa. If you were to go back to 1 Samuel 31 about the battle, it says there in verse 7, this is what it says. It says, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So why are the Berethites in Gidaim? Because they lost the battle and the Philistines took over and kicked them all out. So that's why we're told here that these two captains are sojourners because their hometown has been overrun by Philistines. So, because Abner and Saul had lost the battle, the families of Beeroth had to leave their homes and become sojourners. Maybe one of these two brothers can take up the mantle of Abner. They're, they're most likely cousins to the king, effective in their jobs. Maybe one of them can rise to the occasion to stabilize the kingdom and lead resistance against David. But the other possibility, if things go badly for Ishbosheth, lies with the grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth. This is Jonathan's only surviving son. If you remember, David had made a covenant with Jonathan to always do good, and that's, that'll come up later in the story of Mephibosheth. But we're told here how Mephibosheth was crippled as a child. When he and his nurse fled after Saul and Jonathan were killed 
on Mount Geboa. Now, why would they have to flee? Because the king and the, and the king's son are dead, and the Philistines have a habit of taking out royal families. So the nurse, in order to, to keep Mephibosheth alive and protect the royal line, runs with this five-year-old Mephibosheth, and he's dropped and becomes crippled. But here's the problem. Right now in this story, Mephibosheth, we're told that David has ruled for seven years. Mephibosheth is probably about 12 years old now. He's too young to rule Israel, and he can't go out to battle Israel's enemies. Why? Because he's crippled. And in this day and age, a king had one job, to go out and fight the battles of his people. So all of this bears out the disintegrating and fragmenting of Ishbosheth's kingdom and all of Israel's hopes. So their hope will either lie in two other Benjamites or Mephibosheth. And now our story takes an ominous turn as we see the death of King Ishbosheth in verses 5 through 7. Look there at what happens, an ominous turn. Now the sons of Remen the Berethite, Rechab and Bana, set out. And about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Now he elaborates on the story. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. So whatever hope Ishbosheth had, it was soon taken. The writer of Samuel tells us of the conspiracy of Bana and Rechab to remove Ishbosheth as king. So they travel, they leave Gideim and travel to Mahanaim. And these men, when they arrive, because they're relatives, because they're captains who have to work closely with Ishbosheth, they're not seen as a threat. They're not, there's, no, there's no suspicion involving these two men. They go into the house. The writer tells us, supposedly looking for wheat. Hey guys, we're just looking for a snack. We're going to grind some wheat, make some bread, maybe a cake. It's going to be great. But that's not what they do, right? They go into Ishbosheth's chambers and stab him to death. The writer tells the story twice, adding more detail in the second version. Now you might wonder, why does he do that? This is common in Hebrew narratives. The reason, the point of telling the story twice is to draw out subtly something that you might not notice the first time that you read it. And I think here that the point of telling the story twice is to draw out the cowardice and the treachery involved in this murder. Bana and Rechab, they look tough. They look like men of action. They lead raiding bands, and they carry out pillaging and plundering. They are men of action. They look like those who get things done. They take risks. They take chances. They advance agendas, and they unite kingdoms. They are practical men with practical solutions. Morality for them is simply the opioid of the masses. We don't have to operate like normal people. Ethics and morality just slow down revolutions. The writer wants you to come to the conclusion yourself that these men are not the heroes of Israel. They are traitors. 
They go in to a sleeping king under the pretense of peace and kill him on his own bed, and then they cut off his head and escape through the Arabah all night. That's the death of Ishbosheth. It is an inglorious ending to his reign. And then the, the story moves here to the delivery of the news to David. The news will get to David. Look there at verses 8 through 10. He says here, he says, they traveled, they went, went by way of the Arabah all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me the gospel, good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave for his news. So let's put ourselves again in the story. After Bana and Rechab escape, they made the journey to Hebron to deliver the head of Ishbosheth to David. The head obviously proved something. It proves that Ishbosheth is dead. You're not going to just show up and say, I stabbed the king and he might survive his wounds. The king is dead. Ishbosheth has perished. It is at this point that they speak to David. Now, they have been rehearsing this speech all night long by way of their escape. They have put time into this. And so here is what they say. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. You should read all of that very closely. Every word matters. Notice their argument. Here's the first part of their argument. This is the son of your enemy, Saul, who sought your life. This is the head of the son of your enemy, Saul, who sought your life. Well, that's half true. That's half true. Saul did seek David's life, but David did not consider Saul his enemy. David never lifted his hand against Saul, though he could have killed him during several encounters. If you were to turn back to 1 Samuel 24, so just flip back about eight or nine pages in your Bible, flip back to 1 Samuel 24, where Saul happened to go into a cave to relieve himself, and David and his men were hiding in the same cave. Basically, God gave Saul into David's hands. So 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 4, this is the scene at the cave. It says, Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe there in the cave. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And after David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, look what David says, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? 
Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against, the, against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, may you know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. That last line means everything to David. And that's the line that, that these men, Bana and Rechab, misuse in the second part of their argument. Look at the second part of their argument. They argue that the Lord has avenged David on Saul and his offspring. The Lord has done that? Did the Lord do that? What's the answer? No. The Lord did not do that. Bana and Rechab, you went in there and stabbed him. You did this. David wasn't taking credit when he was at the, t- at, the, at the cave with Saul. David said, the Lord will avenge me on you, not me. I'm not going to do it. I don't expect my men to do it either. That's the point here. They did it. They hide their conspiracy and murder in theological justification. One commentator said it cleverly. He said, they come with blood on their hands and theology on their lips. The Lord has avenged my Lord the King on Saul and his offspring. Theological justification for murder. Just think about that for a second. Here's the application Oh, how all of us are tempted to act like Rechab and Bana and to use theology to justify our actions. We can use theological excuses to cover our sin and our folly. We are masters at this. And as a pastor, I see this all the time. And I don't see it, I'm not talking about out there. I see it in my own life. I see myself making theological justifications for my own sin and my own struggles, right? We can excuse ourselves and say things like this. Well, we're all sinners. True. No argument with that. But, that. but does that truth negate the other truth that we have actually done what the Lord forbids? We have actually broken God's law. What about repentance? What about being broken over my sin and over, and over our sin? What about owning your sin as sin before God? So all of us have to be careful that we do not use God as a convenient argument to justify our own sinful behaviors. We can't do that. Theology is not meant for that. Theology is meant to lead us to worship. It's meant to lead us to humility. It's meant to lead us to repentance. So if it only serves you and me to selfishly justify myself and yourself, then that kind of theology will not save you. It will only damn you. Because in that case, you're actually worshiping and justifying yourself. That's what's actually happening. Not God. It'd be much better to say with Paul in Romans 3, let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Be careful 
lest you, like Rahab and Bana, use theology to cover up the blood on your hands. It will not stand. Now, back to the story. David doesn't buy their theological justification because he has his own. He has his own theology that guides him and guards him and works gratitude into him. Look what David says. David, they give a theological answer. David gives a theological answer. David says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And then he recounts what happened when the news came about Saul being killed. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. So here's what David is saying. Pay attention to those words. David is saying this, no, Bana, and no, Rechab, no, you have not redeemed me. You have not rescued me. You have not saved me. You have not anointed me, though you call me king. The living Lord, the living Lord, who promised me the throne has redeemed me. You are not saviors. You have not brought me good news. God has redeemed me. God has saved me. Think about David's life. This is what David would have said. God has saved me from the lion and the bear when I was a shepherd. God saved me when I was just a boy before the giant Goliath. It was God who saved me in every battle with the Philistines. It was God who saved me from Saul over and over and over again. And it is God who has set me as king over Judah. And without your help, without your help, God will keep his promises to me. God doesn't need your help. As the Lord who lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Do you notice what's happening here? There's incredible practical wisdom for us as we listen to David. All of us must remember who our Redeemer actually is. You need to know in every circumstance and situation of your life who is Lord and who is your Redeemer and where your redemption is is found. For David, his redemption and his salvation and him being made king is not found in Bana and Rechab and what they have done. It is in the Lord who has made these promises. We have to remember this. Our redemption isn't found in our schemes or in our plans or in our wisdom. It isn't found in our politics. It isn't found in position. It isn't found in any power we may have. Our redemption isn't in our physical health or our financial well-being. It isn't in our relationships or our careers. Hear me, this is the important line of the sermon. Our salvation and our hope is only found in Christ. Amen? Nowhere else. David knows this. And it would do our souls good if we settled that today. Jesus alone is the wisdom and power of God. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life are only found in Him. So listen, it is better to have a theology that produces humility, gratitude, obedience, and worship than to use theology just as a convenience to cover for my sin. 
So my question for you this morning is how strong is the motive of gratitude towards Christ in your life? How strong is that in your life? Day by day, how strong is the motive of gratitude? Does that guide your decisions? Does it guard your path and your heart from sin? Does it grow in you a passion for worship and service? I read, I read the story about Polycarp of Smyrna from around A.D. 155 um, in my studies this week. And this was the story. It says that about A.D. 155, Polycarp of Smyrna was arraigned before the authorities and required to call Caesar as Lord or bur- and burn the requisite pinch of incense as repentance. Polycarp refused. He's an early church father. The consul assured him that he had wild beasts and would feed Polycarp to them if he refused. He says, if you refuse, I will send for their beasts. And Polycarp said, send for them. (laughs) Great. Is that the answer you really want to give if the the proconsul says, I have wild beasts I'll feed for? I'll feed to you. If you don't don't denounce Jesus and say Caesar is Lord, I'm going to feed you to the wild beasts. And Polycarp says, send for them. Go get them. I hope they're hungry. All right, that's what he says. And this is what, this is what the, the proconsul said. He says, if you despise the wild beasts, I will send you to the fire. Swear and I will release you. Curse the Christ. And this stirred Polycarp's stellar response. Here's the quote. He says this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? What's the answer that Polycarp is giving? It's gratitude, humility, worship. Gratitude, humility, and worship. That's where his theology led him. Not to manipulation and covering up of sin or seeking to do things by underhanded means. Listen, gratitude is an incredible safeguard against idolatry. Especially the idolatry of self-preservation and self-promotion. Let me end here. Let me conclude this way. Let's look at, finally, we've seen the delivery of the news to David. Now let's look at the determination that justice be done. Look here at verses, at verses 9 and 10, 9 and following. Look how the story concludes. He says there, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, this is David, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require blood, his blood at your hand, and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Here it is. David's theology leads him also somewhere else. It leads him to justice. Justice was not done in Mahanaim, and justice is what will be done in Hebron. Bana and Rechab apparently rehearsed this entire story of their murderous plot to David, thinking they would be received as, Hebrew, as, as heroes. As they murdered Ishbosheth as he slept on his bed. David knows what they've done. They, they've confessed to it. So David reminds them of what he did to the Amalekite who had brought them the same news. And David says, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand? This is justice being done at Hebron where David, hear me, 
is already king. Don't miss that. Look back at verse 8 at this one subtle little phrase where it says in verse 8, they said to the king. Everywhere else in all of this story, it's been they spoke to David, they spoke to David, they spoke to David, they spoke to David. But verse 8, there's a little subtle drop. They said to the king. David is king according to God's word in Judah. And as far as David is concerned, God will be the one who ultimately keeps his word and making him king over all Israel. David is content to patiently wait on God and obey his word. So David does what is right before the Lord in Judah. He executes justice on these conspirators and claims that righteousness will be the foundation of his throne. Now again, let me close where I started. In this little instance, this little instance in the little town of Hebron in Judah, David is the prototype for the kingdom that will ultimately be brought by Jesus. Whatever just, whenever justice is done, however small, however seemingly insignificant, it should encourage believers to stay the course. And justice is being done in Hebron among the families and friends in Judah. We have to stay the course, trust Jesus, that one day he is soon returning and he will make every wrong right and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we can still long for the day when justice will be done. But David is off to the races here in Hebron. My question this morning is, do you know this heir of David whose name is Jesus? Do you know that he came to live the life you could not live and die the death you deserve? Do you not know that he told us, Jesus himself, that due to our sins we are separated from God and that righteousness will be done? That there will be a day when we give an account before him but Jesus willingly laid down his life on the Roman cross, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, so that the righteous requirement of the law could be met in him and so that we could be forgiven. And we receive this gift by grace through faith. Not because we deserve it, but because God is merciful. That is the offer of salvation that Jesus brings. If you do not know him, we invite you to know him today. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would bless your word today as we've studied. Father, we ask that, Lord, you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. And, Father, if there be any here who knows not Christ, that today they would lay down their sin and their unrighteousness and not make excuses. And, Lord, that their theology would bring them in humility, in humility and gratitude to the Christ. That those who are weak and weary would find rest in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.